Thank you, ladies. If you would, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you're a first-time guest with us today, certainly thankful that you are here. And uh, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. If you don't have one, that is our gift to you. Um, I was told a couple weeks ago that I keep saying there's a Bible in front of you, and we'd had so many Bibles taken that there weren't always Bibles in front of people. So there really should be Bibles there. (laughs) today. It's not a good sign when you come in and the preacher tells you there's a Bible and it's not there and he's lying, you know. (laughs) We've been told to this point in chapter 4 that as believers we are to test Every spirit that there are, in fact, John's warning to the church, those who would creep in to teach who are not of God. And so we've been given this warning carefully, methodically to consider whether or not the teaching that comes from the ministries we're involved with uh, finds itself agreeing with what the apostles and the prophets have written. We ultimately want to make sure that our testing comes not from our own subjective opinions, but from the objective Word of Almighty God. And then from there, John goes on to give us this proposition that God is love. He says that love is from God, that whoever loves has been born of God, and that whoever loves proves that they know God, and we understand that that knowing is, as we continue to grow in our understanding of who Christ is, then we continue to grow in our understanding of how we can love one another. So there's a great encouragement, not only a test of our faith, but an encouragement that we would grow in our knowledge, and I'm going to make the argument today, uh, doctrinally, of who Christ is that we can love our neighbor well, So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand as we begin in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. John writing under the inspiration of the one that gives us breath this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning knowing that we lack the ability to love on our own. Knowing that if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that that can only be because you have worked grace in our hearts. Father, might we ever be grateful for that gift. And might we ever be amazed at the reality that you would love sinners like those gathered in this room, like the ones standing at the pulpit today. Christ's name, amen. 
There's this vital encouragement inside the body, this twofold again, both a test and an encouragement to brotherly love. And John starts by giving us this proposition that God is love, that that is the the foundational uh, reality of the appeal that he makes. God is love. It is his nature. It is his character. It is who he is. It's not something that he does. It is his being. Uh, of being loving. We look back, and we did last week, at uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, we see that John has already said that God is light. So there are these two realities that John has laid before us. God is pure, He is holy, He is other than we are, and yet He is love, He is imminent, He is close, He is near. God has a love that is Holy. We, 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 we have to reckon with the reality that in our own generation there is not a word that has been more abused than that of the word love. Far too often people will tell each other, well, I love you, but... And then they go on to explain that they're actually not going to act on that. Or, and I don't even have to illustrate that. I think we've all seen in our own lives and in our society the reality... That love in this life, apart from the graces of God, is a broken thing. The glorious thing for you and I this morning is that even though we live in a world that is in the power of the evil one, we know we're of God. And even though this world has profane and perverted expressions of what love is, God hasn't left us to those things. In fact, these two verses tell us that He has manifested, that He has shown to us, that He has demonstrated what true love really is. You see, what John is saying here, he's really quick, as soon as he has pointed out the reality that love is from God, that those who genuinely love are from God, have been born of God, and know God, because God is love, He immediately pivots and He is anxious to describe to you and I, to encourage you and I, that God has not left us without example, but in fact has sent His only Son into the world that we might understand what love is. We live in a day and age that is very dark, a day and age where many people believe that the Bible falls short of the standard of morality in the systems of love of our day. Uh, We live in a day and age where people would say that confronting an individual of their sin, whether it's anger or a sexual sin or fill in the blank, whatever it is, that that is not loving. To be loving in the context of our society is to give approval to what an individual wants to do. Because in our day and age, the individual is the end of all things, not the glory of God. But what John does here is he points out the reality that God has given us a vision of the love of God. Now the problem for you and I is that we're born into a world uh, of spiritual blindness and we are born spiritually blinded. 
We look at the pages of Scripture as fallen human beings apart from the grace of Almighty God and we will not understand the love that was manifested in the life and the person and the work of Christ. We must have the Spirit of God as our teacher. You see, we we continually, we, we can even be filled with a knowledge about the things of God. We can be filled with knowledge uh, about the different Bible narratives and even the linguistics and all of those things. But without the Spirit of God, we, 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 we lack a vision of the love of God in its fullness. Uh, we lack a vision of being able to see the kindness of God to sinners like you and I. You see, what John's really trying to do is lay down this vision before us that if we really understand who God is, do you know what will happen in our lives? If we really know and can understand and God has really informed our minds and given us a vision of the love of God towards us, what ends up coming out is that we will love God and we will end up loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he he lays down this trajectory of thought seeking to encourage us in the direction of loving our brothers and sisters well. But John knows something about you and I. He, he knows, you know, you remember Jesus was asked what the first and great commandment is. And he says that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And John just knows something about you and I. And that is until we actually begin to love God, we will never love our neighbor. Until we begin to have a vision of who God is and to consider Him in all of His kindness towards us, until we get our view of God right, we will never get our love of neighbor right. I was talking to a brother in Christ uh, that's a member of our church this week uh, about an individual uh, conversation that he had. And uh, this conversation with another individual basically went, all churches are really built, and, and regardless of of background or what their label might be, uh, they are built around this encouragement just that we would love our neighbor well. And that's basically the sum total of the church. The problem is, is I think that in far too many circles, that just like this young man, we have divorced the command to love God first from the second commandment to love our neighbor. We are hopeless in loving our neighbor without first loving God. Because in fact, what we will wind up doing, even in our best efforts, friends, we are idolaters by nature. And if we do not know God in His fullness, and if His holiness, if the light of who He is has not shown into our hearts to reprove us of our sin, then our love will merely serve as a mechanism to draw other people into idolatry that just looks like our own. So it's important that we know, that we understand, that we pursue what this love really is and what it means. You notice that these two verses, verses 9 and 10 that we focus on today, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Do you see how close that, that those statements are 
to the favored verse of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. They're synonymous. They're very close and intertwined. But here, we see far too often John 3.16 pulled out of context and used merely as a proof text to say, well, God loves everybody the same. There is no distinction or variation in His love. There is no aim in His love. And when we lean into what John has been teaching us to this point, we have to, we have to reckon with the fact that that just is not so. Because God does love a particular people uniquely. And He is drawing together those people for His own glory. See, what we find in verses 9 and 10 today really is just an encapsulation of the complete work of Christian theology. If we could get these two verses down and understand them well in their fullness, then I think we would have the fullness of what Christian theology teaches. What John is giving us an example of here this morning is the reality that when the Christian is called to love his brother well, he must do that inside the bounds of objective truth. He he must love his neighbor inside the guidelines, uh, inside the realities that God has laid down before the foundations of the world. He, He must live his life in accordance with and not contrary to the Word of God. But you and I live in a day and age where we have been so, if if we haven't been taught this in our churches, and some of you have because you've come to me and told me the movements that you've come out of. If it hasn't been from your churches, then it's just from the culture and we've just absorbed the reality that, that we think like this. We think there is the love of God over here. And we like that. And then there is theology and doctrine over here. And they are two separate things. Friends, can I tell you that they're not separate things. We do not love well. We do not even understand what love is without an understanding of theology and doctrine. Now, here's why I think we've come to this point. Because there's so much bad theology. Because there's so much bad, heavy-handed, just try hard, do better, straighten up, fly right, get salvation by your own works, kinds of theologies throughout the ages. Man is a fallen mess who thinks in the face of a holy God, he can bring himself into right relationship with God in his own strength. And so people think about theology and I think their frustration or their exhaustion with theology really comes down to the reality that they've only been given bad theology. If I were to tell you today that we're going to have a meal after the service and, I, and we're going to serve to you liver and onions, how many of you would show up? Not many of you. Amen, brother. Thankful. Here's the thing. That's because most of you have not been served good liver and onions. When I was growing up in Missouri, I knew someone who could cook. It tasted great. I went to a restaurant uh, in South Dakota of all places. 
And I ordered liver and onions. It was a gas station restaurant. Let me tell you, if you think that liver and onions is a bad idea, it's a really bad idea at a gas station. (laughs) Friends, we have to understand that good theology is not a burden. It brings us to glorify God and genuinely love our neighbor. So we must have a functional theology. We must think through what God has done to manifest among us His love. You see, there's so many people who say, well, really, all that matters is love. We we don't need the theology. The church has gone astray time and time and time again. She has messed up the doctrine that God has so clearly laid out in Scripture over and over and over. And so we need to forget all of those arguments and we need to just love one another. Well, the second we agree on that, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to define what loving one another really means. And when we do that, do you know where we are? We're back into doctrine. So we have no hope apart from growing in our doctrinal knowledge. And friends, here is the reality. We have been taught, or we have been told in this very chapter, that we are to test the spirits. And then John goes on to encourage and exhort us in loving one another. So there's no way that if he starts out by saying test the spirits, that genuine love can really manifest itself in the body of Christ divorced from the doctrinal understanding of the person and the work of Christ. But that is what we have been up to in the American church for the past 150 years in so many movements. Churches that say, listen, we don't need to really fight over the atonement. You can have your view of the atonement. I can have my view of the atonement. We don't need to fight over whether or not the virgin birth is a reality that, that, that's historical and rooted in actual fact. We, we, what difference does that matter? We don't need to argue and fuss and fight over uh, the decrees of God, over how salvation actually uh, it comes into an individual's life. We, we, we don't need to argue over regeneration. Those are doctrines that were argued about 500 years ago and we need to forget all of that stuff and merely just love one another. But friends, what I find in our churches today is an anemic, weak, and I'm not attacking you this morning. In fact, this week I've been very encouraged to see you love precious family well. But uh, I find at large an anemic, weak kind of love That merely we just pat each other on the back and we say, there, there, you can do whatever you want in your life and I will love you. And that's not love at all. That is not the kind of love that we find in the Word of God. You see, ultimately, according to these two verses, the idea of love and doctrine go hand and hand. So the question... That we must ask ourselves is how do we know that God is a God of love? What is the basis of our knowledge? What is our, uh, the ultimate understanding, the position that we hold in knowing that God is a loving God? And some will say, well, Jay, we know that God has forgiven our sins, that He has made us new, and so we know that God loves us. But the question that has to stem from that is that how do you know that God will forgive 
your sins. How do you know that when you die, you will stand before a holy God and that your sins will have been atoned for? How do you know those things? What is the authority, what is the ground for your confidence that you are right before God this morning and that He loves you? Is it a feeling? Is it merely an experience? Is it, is it merely somebody telling you that you're a pretty decent person? And so you, you surely, of all people, you're forgiven. No. Beloved, part of what John is saying in his letter is ultimately what undergirds all of our confidence that God is love to us and, and that we will stand having our sins fully atoned for comes in our confidence on the the authority of the Word of God, the authority of the Word that has been spoken through the apostles and through the prophets. It is the Word of God that gives us the underpinning for understanding the love that we can have one for another. You see, far too often, when we talk about love inside the body, we just kind of muse over a philosophical kind of what we think love is. And friends, what happens when we do that is we fall far short of really understanding biblical love. Because the Bible actually does speak about a God who is loving. And it doesn't speak of a God who is loving only when, listen, this Martian nonsense that creeps into the church all throughout church history and is in our church today. Anybody in any fashion that wants to say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament is an absolute liar. Because what they will want to say is, well, the God of the Old Testament is kind of heavy-handed, but the God of the New Testament is really loving and kind. That is nonsense. We find in Genesis that our God is a loving God and that in His speaking everything that is out of nothing, ex nihilo, that there is the manifestation of the love of God in creation. The very act of His creating all things that are is an expression of His love. Again, I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating. This idea that has come into the church in our generation that God was so desperate and needy so He created the universe because He wanted to feel love and He wanted to be loved and so He made the world. He made this world perfect and upright, but it quickly fell under uh, the deception of Satan and is now in the power of the evil one. And this world, we'll get to this, doesn't love God. And he never needed another world to experience love because inside the Trinity, there is perfect unity and there is perfect love. He didn't need us, but he created the universe out of an expression of, of love in some sense. Now, there's an argument I'm sure that can be had there. But then going on from that, we also see that our God proves and demonstrates his love providentially. That is how he works throughout all of our lives, molding us and growing us, leading and guiding and, 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 and lording over all of the circumstances in our lives, even the most painful, difficult things that we go through. God is showing, he's demonstrating the love that he has for his people. 
You can see that individually in your own life. You can see that all throughout church history as the church has faced in every generation varying kinds and degrees of persecution and yet God providentially has kept His promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against His people and against His church. And so God has shown love towards each one of us in those ways. God also has a common grace way of expressing his love. Matthew chapter 5 verses 40, verse 45, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. The love of God is universal in the sense that he sends all of these common graces to individuals that even hate him and run from him. Our God is love in all that he does. There's not just a little black rain cloud hanging over the farm of every farmer who does not believe in God. God allows the flourishing of all of those crops. He he allows for the flourishing of families that are ultimately under the wrath of God. But he's demonstrating that he is loving even in the midst of all of that. But friends, none of those things even get close to touching the hem of the garment of love until you get to the point of knowing Christ himself. And that is what these two verses teach. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love what... What Brian said this morning about the Old Testament pointing to the reality of Jesus, and that is what all of the Bible is pointing to, is this one person, this manifestation, this revealing of the Son of God, that He is the expression, the full expression of the love of God towards sinners. You see, the love of God is only finally appreciated and received in the face, in the works, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only when we realize that God sent His only Son into the world and, and, and realizing that He sent His Son into the world that you and I may live. Now there's no greater reality, theologically or otherwise, than that one truth. That God sent His Son into this world so that we might live. Now I'm afraid that this is what has happened in our day and age. I'm afraid that when we hear God sent His Son into the world, um, that we might have eternal life, that we are ultimately thinking, well, we're pretty good. I'm glad that God did just just a little bit so that we can continue to grow and, and to do our best and to try harder and, and so that we can be loved by God. And it's kind of this ho-hum experience with this statement that God sent His only Son into the world that we might have life through Him. The very first theological reality that we have to level with and, and what really makes these verses mean something is this expression that we might have life through Him. You know why that expression is so important and so vital? Because it tells us something of ourselves before that statement. And that is that we do not have spiritual life apart from Him. That we do not, in fact, come into this world 
with a bent and a penchant towards loving God and loving the things of God and seeking to glorify Him and wanting to bring uh, a praise to His name. No, in fact, it is the exact opposite. We, we come into this world seeking our own glory and seeking our own um, pleasure and, and running from God. The, the, the reality that God has made, uh, that was made manifest in Christ Jesus and that we ultimately are the benefactors that we might come to saving, not, uh, a saving relationship with Him, the first thing that we have to acknowledge and understand is that we are sinful. That we don't live the lives that we should. That we are broken people. And not, I think in our generation, when we talk about brokenness, there's this tendency towards hearing brokenness as I'm just a little messed up and I just need to get back on track. What the Bible speaks of in spiritual death is that we, in fact, are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's why uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, and you, he has quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also, wait, excuse me, we also had our conversations in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were dead to God. We were dead to all of the spiritual qualities that the Bible speaks of, and the joy that this declaration that God manifested His love in the person of Christ brings to us is that we might actually have life in Him. And friends, that's a theological debate. That's a theological argument. There are so many people, in fact, this morning in the American church, the popular by far view of man prior to the coming of Christ is not that we are spiritually dead, but that we are merely spiritually sick, that we're just a little off, that we just need a little boost, a little help. But the Bible declares in very clear terms, the apostles believed that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Far from being lovable and loving, we hated God and we hated one another. But instead of pouring out his wrath immediately, he demonstrates his love. He sends his love in, in the person and in the work of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God commends his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more shall we live through Him? We, by nature, were children of wrath, and we deserved the punishment of God. We rightfully deserved to be cast out. You see, in measuring the love of God, the first reality that we have to come to, the first, the first thing that we have to level with is that we are not lovable people. That we are not individuals, that we're not vessels deserving of love. We're vessels deserving of the wrath of Almighty God. 
And that is the argument of the entire New Testament. People will come to small little verses and they'll take them out of context and try and say, you see, man is, is, is basically good. But friends, the entirety of the New Testament bears out the reality that, that, um, that we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins without the grace of God. I think one of the wonderful realities of this text is that we understand that God sent His Son into the world and that this world, as John describes it in chapter 5, verse 19, is not just kind of a static world, but this is the world that is in the power of the evil one. And as we see Jesus coming into the world, we see Jesus interacting with the religious teachers in his day, this is the God of the heavens that has come into the world, that has manifested the love of God. And here he is, rash, uh, uh, reasoning rather with religious people in his day, seeking to bring them to a right understanding of the truth. And what do they do? Do they say, oh, I'm so thankful that the love of God has been manifested to me. I'm so thankful that you have poured out your kindness in sending your son into the world. No, they immediately start to argue with him. They immediately start to ridicule him. They immediately start to, uh, uh, to, to push back against him and to the point that ultimately they crucify him. So how in the world can we ever come to a theology that says God manifested his love to people who are really lovable people? That's not what these verses teach. These verses teach us that God manifested His love into the world that was in the power of the evil one, knowing that as He sent His Son into this world, His Son was going to die and to bear His wrath for the penalty, not of His own sin, because His Son, son was perfect, but for the sins of those who were neck deep in their own sin. God sent His Son into the world that we might have life. Again, there's this picture in this uh, context that the one word sent. That, that God didn't uh, bring Jesus, the second person, person of the Trinity, into being in the incarnation. No, Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. He was there with all of His glory. With all of His strength. With all of His might. With all of His wisdom. But before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit made this pact, pactum salutis, that they would complete the work of redemption. And God sent His only Son into a lost and dying world to demonstrate what His love is really like. What a glorious reality then, juxtaposed to our sin and our depravity, that God didn't just roll the world up and say, I'm done with it but instead sent His only Son as the one who would bear the weight, the full weight of our sin. That is genuine love. And God sent His Son not to a loving world, but God sent His Son to a world that was full of hate, who despised the things of God, who were not holy, who were not full of light, and yet God still sent His only Son to be a propitiation for your sin and my sin. Brothers and sisters here today who have children, does this not mean something to you? 
Does this not cause you in the depths of your soul to be so thankful for the love of God? Because as you look at your own children, as I look at my children, you know, I don't know that there's one of them, and they can, they can be pretty ornery on any given day, right Jace? But I don't know that I would be willing to send any one of them to pay the penalty for the sin of, sins of others. And my children are flawed. But our holy God sent His holy Son who was pre-existent in glory, had all of the love He ever needed, had all of the praise that He ever needed, had everything that He ever needed, and He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant and sent Him into the world that we might understand what love actually is. I'm throwing all of this in your direction this morning that we might understand the depth of the theological underpinning that we need to really move into loving our brothers and sisters well. Love isn't merely just lip service. It's not merely just saying, I love you. It's not just a Hallmark card and and, and warm and fuzzy feelings. Love means that we are, as a church, going to lay our lives down for one another. That we are going to endeavor what is best for others first and not for ourselves first. See, again, the reality is that we have to get our minds wrapped around all of what God has done in sending His Son into this world. Friends, if, if some people, I think, look into their Bible and they see, they see in their Bible, well, this was biblical times, But our world's different. Our world is more loving. The world into which Jesus came is not the same world that we live in today. Do you remember what happened when Jesus came and Mary was to deliver Jesus? Where did they have to go? They had to go to one of the lowliest places in society for Mary to deliver the Son of God. There was no, at this time, there was no uh, honor given to women who were bringing children into the world. The world was in uh, total uh, disarray, desiring privilege and pomp and circumstance and all of those outward things, all of the vanity that we find in our own day and age. The, the world was consider, uh, concerned with building territories and kingdoms and And all the like, all of the things that men were up to then kept ultimately Christ from being received into the world in His rightful place. He was born into a manger in in lowliness. And friends, can I tell you that this morning our world has not changed one bit? There is no honor given to life in our own generation. The Pregnancy Help Center... Uh, down Sherwood Way bears witness to that reality. There is no room to honor life because we have our own priorities. We have politicians today that will stand up and make apology for abortion and generally that apology will be something like this. Well, individuals need to be able to make that choice on their own because they would, you know, it's not fair that they would destroy their own life with the child. Do you not see the spiritual wickedness and depravity even in our own generation. And friends, I don't believe that it's getting any better. I believe that we're getting better at putting lipstick on the pig. 
I think that we're just getting better at making the outside look good, but really men's hearts have not changed at all. But I know this, that God has still demonstrated his love to each one of us who are gathered here today in the reality that he sent his only begotten son into this world, into a world that was not concerned with the things of God, with honoring life, with honoring the holiness of God, the purity of the gospel, and yet Christ came. You see, I think far too often, friends, you and I are prone to giving ourselves excuses also that, look, I would love people if they were just more lovable. You know, if Brian would really straighten up and fly right, (laughs) thank you, Carrie, we have an agreement. If Sarah would just be nicer, If Lewis would just, you know, I mean, come on. Then we could really love one another in the body of Christ. But friends, these verses 9 and 10 leave us with no justification for ever not loving our neighbor well. Because the holy God of heaven sent his only begotten son into a world that was full. It wasn't a little bit of darkness. It was completely pitch black when the light of the world came into it. In this, the love of God has been manifested. And here is the reality. He came to be a propitiation for our sin. And again, what does this mean? This has to be taken in a theological understanding. Okay. And, and this, this word propitiation is synonymous with the word atonement. A a, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. It's a doctrinal word. And that God sent His only Son into the world to be a propitiation for our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What this one thing means is that Jesus came into the world not only to be our great high priest, and He is this morning, We can come in week after week and we can confess our sin because Jesus is our advocate standing at the right hand of God the Father pleading His blood over the sins of all of the redeemed. And what a joy that is. But Jesus not only is our great high priest, He is also the sacrifice. And He is the one who laid Himself on the altar for our sins. He wasn't stripped of His own life. He laid it down willingly. And that also is a theology that informs our ability to love our neighbor well. That we don't have to hold on to things, but we can willingly lay down our own prerogatives for the betterment of others. That we might bring glory to God and that we might... Uh, acknowledge the reality of the love that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you this morning that no one who is in Christ will ever be more loved than they are this very moment. Because it is not the subjective kind of feeling-driven love that we're after in this life if we're rooted in the Word of God. The reality is we are rooted in the objective reality that Christ, uh, that God the Father sent His only begotten Son into the world To be a propitiation for our sins. And by that we can know that we are loved well. Not only did He send Him into the world 
to be a propitiation for our sins. He didn't stop there, but He also raised Him to new life. He showed us that the sacrifice that Christ gave for your sin and my sin was actually acceptable. That we will never be rejected because of our sin. Because it has been fully atoned for. Because it has been fully paid. And we know that we have been seated in heavenly places with Him. And what a joy that is this morning. Again, so as we think through those things, and I've kind of just shotgun blast all of them, we see the love of God and we're given a, a better understanding of loving one another in those things. But we also need to look at this reality. And that is, look at verse 10. I think one of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. And it gives such clarity to what the gospel actually is. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His only begotten Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The gospel is not, there is one gospel. Do you remember Paul saying, if anyone else comes to you and preaches to you another gospel, let him be anathema? There is only one. And the gospel that has been delivered both by Paul and by John and the other apostles is a gospel that puts at the forefront the redemptive work of God and not the religious decisions of men. In this is love. Not that we loved God first. There is no room in that statement for a reaction on God's part towards us, is there? There is no room in that statement for God looking down into the world and just waiting with bated breath to see down that tunnel of time if someone will turn around and love Him and then He will set His love upon them. That's not love at all. That's not the love that, 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 that God has manifested to us. No, the love that, that came after you and I is a love that, that pursued us in our sin. You know, I think that's one thing that we have stopped doing in the church. And it shows that we've misunderstood love altogether. Is we don't pursue one another in a way that confronts sin. We just kind of, well, I mean, they have their life and I have my life and what business is it of mine if, if so-and-so is neck deep in sin? Friends, the, the picture that God has given us in the gospel is that He pursues sinners. He, he, he has sent His Son to be a propitiation for those sins, but part of that whole gospel and that picture is that sin is confronted. That we deal with those things. That we, we lovingly seek restoration with our brothers and sisters in Christ inside the body. And we lovingly seek restoration with our neighbor by proclaiming the gospel to them. But that receiving of love never begins with us. It always, 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 always begins with God. Friends, this whole idea that, well, God responds to those who love Him well. I really wonder when people say things in that vein of thought if they've ever read the Old Testament. Because those old, the, the, the nation of Israel was constantly run, running away from God. There's some Old Testament books that deal with Israel as a nation in not so kind 
G-rated categories of description. That she's constantly just whoring herself out to the entire world. She's not lovely. She's not delightful. She's not beautiful in and of herself. But what does God constantly do? He pursues His people because He loves them. Because love isn't something that He does from time to time, but because love is who He is. And friends, can I tell you this morning on the authority of the Word of God, the same thing is true for you and I. God didn't find Brian when Brian was acting right. We'd still be waiting for that day. Amen, Libby? Amen. Or Jay, God didn't find me at at the pinnacle of my spiritual strength and say, well, I'm going to love Jay. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that we loved Him first. It's that before the foundation of the world, God set His love upon His church. And friends, there is freedom in that reality. There is freedom to love the church well in the reality that God knows those that belong to Him. God knows those whom He will redeem. Jesus knew those whom He laid His life down for. And not in a knowing where He had to learn something. He knew before the foundation of the world who His Father purposed Him to save. You see, there's this two-fold gift, I think, in the picture of redemption too that we miss often. And I think we can see it even in our text blatantly today. And that is that Christ is the gift to the bride. Jesus is the gift of love to the church. He is the demonstration. There is not an individual who is in the body of Christ who should ever hang their head and think, well, I wonder if I am loved. Lift your head and look to Jesus and see the reality that God sent His glorious pre-incarnate Son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for your sin. And you will know that you are loved. But not only has God given the Son to the church, He's also gifted the bride, the church to the Son. And that will be consummated one day. That will be brought into full fruition. But there are these theological veins is what I want you to see all throughout the text this morning. There are these theological realities all over the pages of Scripture that inform us of how we are to love the body of Christ and how we can understand His love towards us. So we have to come to this final question. This question of why has God God done this? Why has God had anything to do with you and I? As we were dead in our trespasses and sins, hating each other and hating the world and hating Him, why did God look upon us and give us His only begotten Son? Why has God done any of this? What led Him to do this? Again, it's not that we loved Him. It's not that we were praising Him. It's not that we came and sought His glory. It's simply that He is who He is and He is loving us because that is His nature. And He is doing this for one reason above all reasons. And that is to bring glory to His own name. Friends, can I tell you that I believe that's what's at the basis of our loving one another well inside the body of Christ? 
if you make loving the body of Christ, and I see this in my own heart, I see it in a thousand different displays in our church at times when people articulate, well, if our church would just, and fill in the blank, be better at this or have more of this or do this better, then I would, and implicitly in their in our language is then I would be able to love. But can I tell you that there is a greater reason to love your neighbor that's sitting across from you this morning? And it is simply for the glory of God. If the glory of God would be the foundation of why we loved one another, I think we begin to love well and rightly. And we don't love because others love us. We don't love because others are always lovable. We don't love because we get the things that we like out of the lives of other people. We love because we have already been loved. And because the glory of God is our greatest concern. Because we don't want to live our lives in a way that would ultimately amass glory for ourselves. We want to live our lives in a way that others around us can see that our God is in fact glorious and he's glorious because he sent his only begotten son into the world to atone for the sins of those who profaned his name, who spat upon him, who rejected him. We love others because he is the God of the ages who in our trespasses and sins didn't say I'm done with you, but he rather pursued us in love, confronting us with our sin in showing us the law that we might turn in repentance and faith to God. I don't know what this does in your own heart, what this causes you uh, to think or feel, but friends, when I consider the love of God, I think the first thing that I, I, I feel is why? Why in the world would you ever love me? But I also, soon after that, comes just a sense of gratitude. I'm so thankful that I wasn't left in my trespasses and sins. And that doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy. Nothing of what John writes says, hey, loving your, your brother or sister is going to be the natural, easy thing to do in the flesh all the time. Often it won't be. But it has packed in it, loving the body well, joys that are above just the normal humdrum of life, that we can bring God glory. I, I really do genuinely believe that one of the greatest misconceptions of the church in our generation is this, that we believe we can win the world to Christ if we would go and love on the world's terms. That is a lie straight out of the pit of hell because I believe this. The greatest way that we will impact the world for Christ is not how we love the world. It's how we love one another in this room. And that for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning. I pray that you give us grace and remembering the things that you would have us to keep in our minds from this text. I'm so thankful that you've given us men throughout the ages who have been so capable of handling doctrine and uh, handling your word. And I'm, I'm thankful for a rich heritage in the church, that the church has been loved well in a theological way. I just pray, Father, that we would have in this body a genuine desire not for a haughty uh, wanting to be right, 
but a desire to know the truth and to know doctrine in a way that it would issue forth in a way, uh, an expression of love that would bring you glory. Father, I pray for each individual in this body that we would have discernment, that we would not be drawn away by our own passions, and that we would not be individuals who love and engage the body for our own joy, but that we would first and primarily love the body for your glory. And we know ultimately that will produce joy in our life. I pray, Father, that in the days ahead you would use this church to be a means of grace and kindness and love to the Lyra family as they continue to... um, to mourn Milo's passing. Father, I pray that you would give us strength to continue to herald the gospel to a lost and dying world.